Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. This episode of The Hash is sponsored by Bitstamp and the Galaxy Brains podcast. This is The Hash podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on The Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. everyone and welcome to The Hash. You are watching us on Coindesk TV and listening on the podcast network. It's Taco Tuesday and the holidays are coming up. And so if that taco sponsorship is out there and you got tacos for us, please, we need this by the end of the year. So let's just try and get those wheels in motion. I'm Jen Sanasio. Today's show, we got Will Foxley, Wendy O, and Zach Seward, who is going to kick us off with our first story. The legend of Gerald Cotton lives on <laughs> we're talking about quadriga cx i love talking about quadriga cx because it was one of the first truly baffling mysterious strange crypto capers that i covered in a professional capacity for coindesk.com all right so here's the story about quadriga cx the founder died under mysterious circumstances it was kind of a scam at some point Many of the funds that were locked on Quadriga were inaccessible. It's been a, a protracted bankruptcy proceeding up in Canada. And after years of a lot of these funds being mistakenly sent to a wallet that was not controlled by EY, which, admin, which was administering the bankruptcy, after years of silence from these wallets, a few days ago, 100 Bitcoin moved from them, suggesting that someone else controls these wallets and they aren't the cold wallets as initially advertised by EY when they made this pronouncement that, oopsie, they sent it to these wallets we don't control. So someone controls these wallets. They're sending Bitcoin. It's going through mixers. This is like $1.6 million. This is not nothing. And at the very least, it's a reminder of the crazy story of Quadriga CX. Will's History Corner hit it. Before I get going, before I get going, shout out to Nick Day, who's been covering us for Coindesk for quite some time. Shout out to Nick Day. Go read his report in Quadri CX, probably the best out there. Uh, the history part of this is what happened to Gerald Cotton. Supposedly, he died, I believe, in 2019 from Crohn's disease in India. He was running the exchange in Canada. There became some questions about the financial solvency of the place. 
Uh, and then everyone was looking into like the financials itself and things were just like messed up. There was no controls in place. Uh, there was no good accounting. Hint, hint, looks like FTX all over again. But this was back in 2019, right? For a lot less money. It was about $200 million went missing. Thousands of Canadian customers and Gerald Clinton just disappeared and supposedly died in India from Crohn's disease, even going so far as having his body exhumed from Indian and being confirmed by Indian officials. But as you said, Zach, the intrigue here is that this Bitcoin address supposedly could only be moved by Gerald Cotton himself. So is he alive or is he not alive? And someone else has the ability to control these Bitcoin wallets. That is the question here. And yes, it's some perfect intrigue going into Christmas. And I love this because we need a distraction from everything else that is happening in crypto. We needed this right now. Jen, throw it over to you. Yeah, reading this, going through the whole FTX debacle, was such an interesting experience to read about all of the parallels, right? The bankruptcy filing, the $200 million of customer funds that have been frozen. We have Gerald Cotton. So I do know someone who worked with Gerald Cotton who said, you know, he didn't seem like a bad guy. This person says they don't think that he would have faked his own death. But I think that we could say the same thing about, I'm not, I'm not saying that Sam Bankman-Fried is going to fake his own death or anything. But I think we could say the same thing. I think people who worked with him would say, you know, he didn't seem like a bad guy. I don't think he would have done this. Like maybe some things went wrong. And so uh, my question when I read the story is, is Gerald Cotton alive? Who's moving this Bitcoin? It's just the perfect way to go into the holidays. And I did not have this on my bingo card for what we would be speaking about leading up to 2023. And so while it is crazy and I feel for the customers, that have still not received their funds back from this. It, you know, put a little twinkle in my eye this morning. Wendy? I think we need to ask the guy that hosts Unsolved Mysteries to come on the show and help us solve the mystery. Crypto of, edition. <laughs> at this mm. point. I mean, it's a, cra it's a crazy story. Um, do I, I don't really know what I think about it. It's just a really crazy story. And we're talking about like $1 million being moved, which sounds like a lot of money because it is a lot of money. But at the same time, we're also talking about FTX and the $10 billion hole and just kind of how times have changed in crypto and accelerated. And when we used to be worrying about like $1 million, $1 million hack or something like that, we're now talking about $10 billion that has gone missing. So I guess it's a good story for the holidays, but it just seems so outlandish and outrageous. But again, in crypto, Anything is possible, Will. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Anything is possible. And I love the on-chain analytics portion of this, which is actually keeping this story alive, right? Most of the times when we have these stories, it would die because it goes through the traditional banking system. People are able to pull out cash and disappear. That is not true in the world of Bitcoin, where you can track a transaction for the longevity of it, right? So this is 100 Bitcoin went to that address that was supposedly only controllable by Quadriga CX, Gerald Cotton himself. And now those Bitcoins are being moved into a few different obfuscation softwares that allows the, the transaction history of those Bitcoins to be broken up. And this is where the case will get a little murky, right? We have to see if those Bitcoins continue to move. Are they going to be turned to fiat? Is there a person on the other side of those wallets? And Does that person live in India? Is it Gerald Khan himself? We're going to have to keep watching this one, but I love the on-chain sleuthing part of this story. Jen, I'll turn to you for next story. Well, before I go to the next story, I just want to say I hope that Netflix updates 
that documentary they put out about Quadriga CX. That was, you know, crazy twists and turns. We have more to the story. So Netflix, if you're watching, there is a sequel here for you. All right, we're going off to regula- regulatory land. Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong says that regulation should be limited to centralized actors in a blog post and Twitter thread. He says decentralized products like DeFi, DAOs, and self-custodial wallets shouldn't be involved as transparency is built in by default. He notes a key difference. Though money is transferred through these platforms, they shouldn't be regulated as financial service businesses as the products never take possession of customer funds. This on the heels of Senator Elizabeth Warren's Digital Asset Anti-Money Laundering Act, which we spoke about earlier this week or maybe late last week, which would impose surveillance and registration requirements for almost all participants in blockchain networks, including miners and wallet creators. Zach, I'm going to toss this one off to you first. Brian Armstrong has been a real proponent for the decentralized aspect of this industry, even though he's the CEO of a centralized exchange. What do you make of of his notes here on who should be regulated and how? I think largely he's spot on. I mean, I think the problem is you got to regulate the point of trust. These trust relationships are something that can and should be regulated. Much of them are already. There needs to be some more uh, fine-tooth comb approach to regulating these trust, trust relationships. And that's all well and good, right? That's something that the existing financial system knows well, and existing financial regulations should be able to be applied to that. I think the problem that we're seeing on, on Capitol Hill is like a lack of awareness of how to deal with this other stuff that doesn't have a pre-existing trust, trust relationship baked in, right? So what these bills that we're seeing from Senator Warren and others, they're trying to sort of use a framework for regulating trust relationships in things where it's not really applicable. And so you see these really poorly fitted proposals in terms of regulating DeFi protocols and other things that don't have an actor that needs to be regulated. So I think like, you know, it's sort of like, again, getting this story out there about, again, we say it all the time, square peg, round hole. DeFi doesn't fit in the same frameworks that the existing regulatory um, apparatus knows. And I think there's a lot of fears that it's going to be overextended in a way that just doesn't make sense and doesn't suit anyone's interest. And I think it's good for figureheads, albeit from the world of C5 right here, speaking up and saying, hey, we've got to get this right. Regulate the, regulate the trust relationships. Let everything else flourish. Ultimately, in the long run, that's going to be better. But again, it's scary. It's unknown territory. And regulators are looking at DeFi and saying, oh, God, this is a mess. We need to do something here. So yeah, credit to Armstrong for getting out there and sounding the alarm. Um, Actually curious for Wendy's take on this one. So I'm going to toss it to her. So first thing I want to say is big shout out to Brian Armstrong for actually stepping up and doing the right thing and talking about the differences between decentralized exchanges and centralized exchanges. Next, I want to know, well, I have a question for Elizabeth Warren. I want to know the extent of her relationship with SBS father when he helped her with her tax bill in 2016. I think she should address that before trying to push any predatory crypto regulations through. I think that's important to address. And then the last piece that I want to talk about is, actually, I forgot what the last piece I wanted to talk about was, but I do want to know that question (laughs) from Elizabeth Warren. It'll come back to me. It'll come back to me. But again, I'm very excited that Brian Armstrong is doing the right thing and stepping up and talking about this because, you know, there's, there's some pieces that need to be addressed and yay for him. I'll get you back, Wendy. I'll toss it to you in a second. The one thing I want to point out here is what he said. Brian Armstrong said about decentralized stable coins, quote, saying that they're basically the easiest way for regulators to jump into 
regulating the crypto industries. Start with decentralized stable coins. I think that's a hint and a nod to Terra Luna, which really you know destroyed the ecosystem back in April and May when that unwound. But it also points to his interest in USDC, uh, the large, the second largest stable coin behind Tether, which is owned by a consortium between Circle and Coinbase, and that is a regulated stable coin. That's a centralized stable coin. So it's not algo-backed, it's not decentralized, and he's looking for more regulation around it's a competitor, a competitor product to the one he has st- stood up itself. And you know, standing up a centralized stable coin costs a lot of money. It's a ro- lot of dollars going to regulation for that product. So I think he's looking at the competitive landscape and seeing what DeFi can do and also saying like, hey, maybe I want to build a little bit of a moat here. That being said, I do think this is a good well, contrast versus what SBF did two months ago where he went out and rolled out the red carpet for his own interpretation of what DeFi should be like and how it should be regulated. It's a very different model, very different landscape. And I like that we have someone in the industry standing up and putting out something that's a little bit more palatable to the industry, but also probably a good little uh, handout to regulators. Wendy, I'll throw it back to you, get your take on it. Oh, I remember what I wanted to say. Thank you. So I think it's important to separate the difference between a centralized exchange, how it's a service, and then talk about cryptocurrency. Because I think a lot of the regulators are getting a little bit confused about cryptocurrency, Bitcoin, NFTs, and attacking everything and batching it all together with a centralized exchange. A centralized exchange is almost kind of like a bank, but not. So I think it would be a lot easier to come up with some sort of clear regulation for exchanges, how they're supposed to operate, how they're supposed to report. And then once they're able to do that successfully or remotely successfully, then start to tackle cryptocurrency coins, tokens, and figure out how those work into the ecosystem. Because what we're seeing in a lot of these hearings is everybody saying crypto is a scam, crypto is a scam. But really, Sam Bankman-Fried and FTX, is what they did over at FTX is completely different than what's happening in the crypto ecosystem. We're talking about an actual exchange that was acting as a bank to an extent. So I think it's important to distinguish the two and then come up with separate regulations instead of just banning everything um, like what they're trying to do. Yeah, I think that everyone should go and read this blog post. I mean, he outlines several different points, including, you know, a suggestion for a modern day, how we test for securities. He really encourages regulators letting innovation happen so that we can start to solve some of these problems on our own. So he says, as we get more organizations built on chain using DAOs and smart contracts, we'll see the emergence of on chain accounting. So again, you know, backing up what Hester Peirce said all those months ago, um, about, you know, allowing organizations the time and space to actually decentralize. I really wish and hope that regulators would pick up just this blog post to, to understand, you know, where they can start with their regulation. I think it would be really great guidance for them. Unfortunately, though, I think that, um, what's happened with SBF has eroded the trust that, that the industry has started to build with regulators. And so I don't know that the regulators are going to look at CEOs of centralized exchanges and take their recommendations as they should. Wendy? I think that they should, though. I think that we're talking, we're talking about a group of public servants that don't really understand how crypto works and how this industry works. So I think it is important for them to take the opinion of some of these leaders in the industry. If they don't do that, how else are they going to learn? Let's face it, crypto is still very new. It's been around for what, like 14 years, 13 years. So at the same time, it's a brand new industry and there's a lot of opportunity. And just like we talked about in the Quadra case um, with the coin, with the Bitcoin moving, you can actually track when somebody's doing something naughty and bad. So if anything, I think that that would be a value to the public servants 
they could say, oh, wow, we can actually catch bad guys, which when we're dealing in fiat, it's a lot harder to catch or maybe, you know, whatever else they're using for barter. So I think it is a good opportunity for them to really ask questions to people that seem to be doing things properly. Closing here by saying that Brian Armstrong is optimistic that crypto legislation will pass in 2023, maybe specifically around the stablecoin stuff, but going to be one that's going to be closely watched here in the U.S. All right. That's it for the first half of the hash here on Taco Tuesday. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about BlockFi. They're trying to resume operations, get some money back out the door to make some customers whole. We'll talk about that and more at the end of the short break. Thanks. Times are tough, particularly for crypto. But Bitstamp's different. Bitstamp is the longest running crypto exchange and among the most regulated in the world, which includes a bit license in New York and a payment institution license in Europe. And when it comes to your funds, with Bitstamp, your crypto belongs to you. All your fiat and crypto are kept 100% separated. It's why Crypto Compare ranked Bitstamp the number one crypto exchange, awarding them the highest possible AA rating. Learn more at bitstamp.net. Hey, Will Foxley here, co-host of The Hash. One thing we can take away from everything going on in crypto right now is that it's important to go deep and verify. Crypto Twitter is great, but 280 characters can only go so far. One podcast we love is Galaxy Brains. Here's the host, Alex Thorne, head of research at Galaxy Digital. Thanks, Will. For in-depth takes and probing analysis on topics, trends, and events across the Bitcoin and cryptocurrency ecosystem, check out Galaxy Brains, our weekly podcast. Find Galaxy Brains on your favorite podcast app and on galaxy.com forward slash research. Presented to you by one of the most trusted teams in the industry. It's Taco Tuesdays on the hash. Oh, Welcome back to Coindesk TV's The Hash. I'm your host, Wendy O. We've got Jen, we've got Will, we got Zach. But today's not only Taco Tuesday, it is Tamale Tuesday. And if you eat tamales for the holidays, please remember to order your tamales from your local mom and pop shop because we did that yesterday. Anyways, let's talk about BlockFi and what they're doing. So apparently BlockFi files a motion to return frozen crypto to wallet users. They were one of the first victims of the FTX contagion. They suspended withdrawals and requested users to not deposit to BlockFi wallets or interest accounts on November 11th. And that's when they filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And they are now requesting authority from a U.S. bankruptcy court to allow its users to withdraw assets that are currently locked up on the platform. So maybe some people's Christmas or holiday will be made. I would like to get Jen's take on this story. Imagine having your holidays made by just getting what was rightfully yours back. That's like a sad holiday, but this is the state of the industry right now. I mean, okay, so we learned that BlockFi was filing for bankruptcy three to four weeks ago. I think this is great news that so quickly we're hearing that they are trying to allow customers to withdraw Funds. I know a lot of people this morning on Twitter was comparing this to Celsius, which is, I think it's been five or six months now. We still haven't heard anything from Celsius. We don't know um, what's going on in their bankruptcy filing. And so I think this is good news for customers, like a little 
a little glimmer of hope as we head to the end of the year. But at the end of the day, that those funds are rightfully theirs. BlockFi should have enough funds to pay them back. It's so sad that we're we're at the state where this is something that we should be celebrating. But I hope that the customers get it back. Will, what do you think? Yeah, if memory serves me right, about 80% of their funds are going to be returned to BlockFi or potentially returned to them, right? So we're still in Chapter 11. So this has to go through the trustees, which means that things can drag on quite a little bit. And then also you have to wonder, is it in kind and the assets themselves or is it in dollars? And we still have to know that information. So we'll look forward to that info as we get it. I want to go back to the Chapter 11 filing itself, though. We know that BlockFi liquidated most of its assets on its books into dollars, about $250 million worth of assets. So it's across everything they held. And then they said that they had about liabilities between $1 billion and $10 billion. That's because the form for the SEC when you are or when you're going through Chapter 11, you more or less have to pick a wide range of liabilities. And the larger ticker box there you have to click is you know, between one and 10 billion. So it doesn't give a lot of accuracy in terms of people who are looking for information about a Chapter 11 filing. That being said, it does seem like a lot of people who are involved with this are going to get a lot of their money back, which is a big win. And also shows a little bit of strength for US-based companies, right? Like BlockFi was a company that got hit by a lot of different state securities offices for offering products in those states. And now if we're looking at this state of BlockFi and its ability to give back a decent amount of portions of funds to investors versus something like FTX, which was parked off US shores operating in the Bahamas, which is more than likely not going to give a lot of assets back to people. I think we can say that is somewhat of a win for regulators here. The fact that they are going to be able to give back a decent amount of money to people who had invested in the company. Wendy, I'm going to throw it up to you for your take. I want to ask Jen this question. Do you think that these cases mm-hmm. are going to help set precedent for other cases in the future? And is this, even though these are terrible things that have happened with all the companies fighting for Chapter 11 bankruptcy, do you think this will help kind of push some sort of clarity on the different procedures that the traditional um, bankruptcy courts are going to have to use and apply it to crypto? Because let's face it, there's a lot of unknowns when it comes to crypto due to the volatility. I think we will see precedent set when it comes to bankruptcy court. But I think more importantly, we're going to see regulators looking at what happens and how customers are affected coming out of bankruptcy court. And we're going to see a lot of changes. Well, I don't know if we're going to see this. This is just my opinion. Um, I think we're going to see changes to, you know, terms and terms and conditions. um, What is who is seen as a creditor when it comes to these exchanges? What happens to customer funds? So I think like that's what we're going to get out of this. And I don't know. I mean, yeah, I, I don't I think that's I don't know if we're going to get precedent setting in in bankruptcy court. I'm just rambling now. But yeah, those are my thoughts. Our <laughs> law expert. I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I hope people get their money back. Um, it sucks that they trusted a company that went belly up and hopefully they get their funds back. Hopefully everyone affected by Celsius, FTX, all the ones. Hopefully they all get some of that money back. But again, I hope the lesson is learned that like some of these centralized platforms aren't always worth trusting your money with. Anyway, closing None thought. Kicking it to Will. What do you got? We're going to go back in time and go through a little Bitcoin history and then link it to the future with the new seed round from layer two which is a pretty cool bitcoin company coming onto the scene during the middle of bear market but we'll show that really quick and we'll jump right into it and now will's history corner with will foxley 
That's right. That's right. History is important. And actually, Bitcoin has some history, okay? We're 10 years in this industry, so you better know it. A lot of times people just like to talk about NFTs and layer twos on Ethereum, but Bitcoin also has layer two ambitions, or at least it has had that in the past. If we go back in time, there was this huge debate about how to build further assets on top of Bitcoin. And a lot of those decisions and arguments piddled into nothing where people were like, hey, we can't quite do anything. So if you look in the past, we have things like Namecoin, we have things like DriveChain, we have things like the Liquid Federated Network. Some of these ideas are still around, including DriveChain. DriveChain is an idea to build sidechains on top of Bitcoin through a novel idea called Merge Mining. Basically allows you to build tons of different things on top of Bitcoin, but it has not gotten any traction to date. That is until today where we have a $3 million seed round for Layer 2, which is a Bitcoin company trying to build out drive chains for Bitcoin. What will this do for Bitcoin? Well, Layer 2s will enable things like different assets we build on top of Bitcoin, maybe prediction markets, voting mechanism, things that you're already seeing built on top of Ethereum. And Bitcoiners may or may not want that in the past, but right now, Layer 2 is trying to make that an actual thing. Wendy, I want to throw this up to you. You've been in the space for a while. What's your take on anything built on top of Bitcoin? I think it's super exciting. I, when you said merge mining, I was like, oh, yay, yay. Because I know Syscoin does that. And there's some other, like you're able to merge mine, I think Bitcoin and Litecoin together or whatever. So I think it's really, really cool. And I like to see the innovation when it comes to Bitcoin. And again, you guys, for all the Bitcoin maxis watching, don't come for me, don't come for me. But if we didn't have something like Ethereum and we didn't have all these altcoins, I don't think this would even be a thought in anyone's mind to do this with Bitcoin. So I think it's super cool. I'm very excited about it. I like to see Bitcoin continue to thrive. My only curiosity is going to be is will Bitcoin's, um, will the tech behind Bitcoin be able to support it? Will they be able to support this many transactions? Jen? Yeah, no, I think I agree with you. I think it's exciting if we can make Bitcoin like faster, more efficient and have a little bit more functionality. But my question to you, Will, is is the reason this hasn't really taken off yet until now because people don't really want it? Like we have other chains, we have functionality, we we have altcoins. I know the article says that the, this could be a potential altcoin killer. I don't know if it will be. I think it fails to acknowledge like the meme culture and the excitement behind some of these altcoins and the utility. And so like, I don't know, is this going to take off, Will? Is I'm going to take it off. Costs. I'll protect Jen at all costs. <laughs> we must protect Jen. Thank you, we'll protect Jen. Yeah, when they come for me. <laughs> <laughs> I'll kick it up to Zach in a second because I definitely want to get his thoughts on this. But I think you're right in acknowledging that there is a split, right? There's a Bitcoin maximalist culture, which wants to see Bitcoin appreciate in value. That wants to see all other altcoins die off. They've either been burnt by SEO scams, NFT scams. They just don't like those things. And they really just want Bitcoin to survive as it is right now into perpetuity. On the other side, there is a small contingent of Bitcoiners who really do like things built on top of Bitcoin. And you know, if you go back in the history books, even Ethereum was built because you couldn't build on top of Bitcoin. And a lot of people left Bitcoin culture and went to Ethereum or went to other chains because they couldn't build their application on top of Bitcoin. But now, after the last few years of development, we've seen a few different protocol ideas that are enabled to be built on top of Bitcoin. So it's not just this one, DriveChain. There's other things like Terra, which is built on top of the Lightning Network, which itself is built on top of Bitcoin. So there's lots of different proposals and ideas coming out. I think it's just taken a while for the engineering to get there. So Jen, I don't know. You know, Maybe people don't like this, but I think it is important for Bitcoin to continue that Biddle culture, even if it's just a very small percentage of it. Zach, I want to throw it up to you really quick, though, before we give it off to Wendy. 
Yeah, last thought on this one, like Bitcoin maximalism as like an intellectual movement has taken some hits this year, right? It's sort of down in the dumps and this is sort of potentially breathing some life into Bitcoin maximalism. You see it in the press statement. This is about killing altcoins. This is about hyper-Bitcoinization. But it's also about building functionality on the leading cryptocurrency by market cap. So hey, hats off to them. Let's hope it works. All right, that's it for the show today. Thanks for watching us on The Hash on a Tuesday. We will be back tomorrow to talk about more stuff that's going on in the world of crypto. I'm Zach Seward. That's Wendy O, Will Foxley, Jensen Assey. For The Hash, we will talk to you soon. You have a great day. And go eat a taco or two. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. Hopefully this is the last time you'll hear this ad because with Chime checking account features like fee-free overdraft up to $200 with SpotMe, and getting paid up to two days early with direct deposit, you can probably treat yourself to an ad-free upgrade to spend more time listening to your favorite podcasts, or at least grab yourself an extra morning latte this month. Join millions of Chime members who work on their financial progress with fee-free overdraft and no monthly fees. When you find new ways to save, you can reach your financial goals easier and still have the occasional treat. Take more control of your finances and say goodbye to monthly fees. Open your account in minutes at chime.com slash goals 24. That's chime.com slash goals 24. Chime. Feels like progress. Banking services and debit card provided by Bancorp Bank NA or Stride Bank NA, members FDIC. Spot me eligibility requirements and overdraft limits apply. Terms and conditions apply. Go to chime.com slash disclosures for details.